You are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Rogue. Each week we design new decks for tournament play. We put our creations to the test and share our findings on the air. Week one of Dominaria is in the books, and the new technology is making a big impact in Modern and Pioneer. From headliners like Leyline Binding and Liliana, to surprise standouts like Maria, Yoshia Declares War, and Sarah Paragon. We are tracking all of the latest developments on today's episode. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show! Welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I am David Robertson coming to you from the Twin Cities and I am joined not by the CEO of the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I am joined by Mordekaiser himself. He is Mord to light on Twitter.com. Mord, what is going on, my friend? All good. How are you, bud? Just doing perfectly around. I'm sad that the CEO couldn't join us, but he's in the middle of a lot. So it's us to keep the cost going. Yeah, exactly. He is uh, moving. Uh, his jet-setting lifestyle is uh, catching up with him. And, uh, you know, it's up to us who truly love the people to uh, keep giving them what they want. Exactly. We have to keep the Bruce going. We have to keep the concept, the content going. And there's no other way to do that than just writing together. So we have a lovely episode for you today, guys. Likely these two next episodes alongside me and David. And then we get joined once again by the Serum Visions gang. Yeah, so today we are going to talk about all of the new Dominaria United uh, 5.0s, interesting tech from the uh, weekend challenges in both Modern Pioneer. And then on our Monday episode, we are going to look at our new card, which is Other Chandler. And we are going to revisit uh, some of our brews from last week, which were Leyline Binding, which we uh, used to some success in both uh, Pioneer and Modern. So before we get to all the sweet new tech, we need to do, of course, a little bit of housekeeping. We want to give a big shout out to our latest patrons. They are Sean G and Casey G. Are they related? I don't know, but maybe. I don't know. I don't want to know. I get we're all <laughs> I don't gods. Know. I would rather not know and assume they are. Yeah, that we're all God's better. children, you know, one of those type of situations. So yeah, just a reminder, if you like the show, if you want to support us, the best way to do that is to go to patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing. Join at whatever level you know you feel comfortable with. You get to uh, join the Discord, which has got all kinds of uh, crazy brews and ideas happening, especially uh, right now, right after a new set release. You also get a bunch of other fun perks. There's a bunch of merch if you're uh, looking to play in some of these uh, poorly attended SEG tournaments and you <laughs> want to uh, represent the Faithless Brewing Gang, that's the way to do it. Exactly. So thanks so much to our new patrons. Hope everybody keeps enjoying the content. And as exactly David said, it's the best way to support us and keeps us going. Yeah. And uh, as Mord says, after the next two episodes, it's going to be the monthly check-in with Serum Visions podcast. We are focusing on our new brewing uh, card of the season. By the time this comes up, Voting should be on its last day, so this likely comes up Friday morning, Friday afternoon, 
Uh, after that, you will come until the end of the day to propose your card. Sorry, voting will not be done. Um, what's the name of it? Um, when you come on, Mord. Proposing new cards will be done. Exactly. Um, you won't be accepting submissions, nominations. It's not just to be nominated. Exactly. Nominations will be done. Will be on this last day. So remember, every patron alongside every three dollar tier, so Rogue Finder tier or above, can nominate cards. But every single patron can, after the nomination is done, vote for new ones. Yeah. So go ahead and uh, you know make your case for whichever card you uh, would like to see us experiment with, and uh, we will be tooling around with that card in the coming months. Uh, joined by the excellent brewers over at Serum Visions. Exactly. Even the one and only Mana Symbol might have a, a tiny bit of a revival as a member of both podcasts at the same time. So we are... Maybe with some luck we can even make, get him to join us on our, that episode. From deep in the Caribbean Ocean or Caribbean Seas. <laughs> exactly. Uh, with that being said, why don't we go right ahead to our weekly... to our focus for today. The Dominaria United tech. Yeah, so Dominaria United was released. We have a whole weekend worth of results. So we've seen the 5-0 drops both in Pioneer and Modern. And we've also seen challenges over the weekend uh, in both of those formats. So what uh, what's the first thing that catches your eye, Mord, as a Modern player? So there was... Dan gave us this huge headliner, which I agree on, which is the biggest card for Modern was, of course, Leyland Binding. I said this on the first day. I told everyone to buy them cheap. I've bought a few of them on MDCO and they already are, are to... I bought them at 12 ticks and they are already up to 25. Also, sorry, tiny bit of extra housekeeping. Ignacio España changed their pledge to 3. Thank you so much. Sorry we didn't mention you, but you did it right as we were recording. Who was that? Ignacio España. Okay, Ignacio España. So he upped his pledge to 3 in order to be able to nominate a card likely. So thanks so much. Sorry we didn't mention you before. It just came up right now. Yeah, this is a real-time adjustment being made. Exactly. Technology is <laughs> happening all around us. All right, so Leyline Binding, you you predicted this card would see a lot of play. You predicted this card would be very good. You bought in cheaply, so you put some skin in the game, as we like to say. I think the card gives a lo- any single deck that can afford to run it or has to make tiny adjustments to run it. It's sort of forced to run it because it generates its own gameplay loop. Where having binding against binding is amazing. Yeah. You guys were talking about a bunch of different uses for it. The one use that I thought was sort of obvious that you didn't talk a lot about was all the Cascade decks. This is cheap one-mana removal that gets rid of anything, including Cascade Hate, uh, that, of course, has a casting cost of three or more. So we saw it in a bunch of those decks as well. Yeah, your Rhinos making a bit of an assertion, because in Rhinos, if you're splashing white, you tend to have a lot of value in going Yorion for binding solitude and such. It gives you enough slots because you are using already four six slots in your cascade package, of course. So right now we have the actually a deck that has been using the most efficiently is Archon Creativity, because it was already a deck that was four or five colors and having access to such a quality removal is insane. Yeah, I mean the thing that really stands out is it's just so so on the first couple turns, you do have to do, you know, clunky things with your mana. But it's like that turn three, four, and five where you get to play one mana, literally exile whatever permanent your opponent's doing. doesn't matter what they're playing, right? You can get rid of a Rhino. You can get rid of a Liliana. You can get rid of a Teferi. You can get rid of a whatever. In the late game, it's insane. Yeah. And then you also get to cast Counterspell or whatever. So you get these incredibly efficient turns on like three, four, and five after doing a little bit of setup, as Mord says. It's not totally free, 
but the cost is relatively low in the early game and then it turns into these crazy like swings right where you're a little behind and then you end up being way ahead yeah and you have stuff for example one of the most common play patterns i found is for example i was playing in asodius control slash esper turn one any triumph like esper triumph or like any on color double triumph into a temur triumph so for example turn one get an esper triumph Turn two, get a Ketria Triumph on my opponent's sense step, and I can already binding for one mana. So on turn two, after playing a Taplan, I can still play a binding. Yeah, and I mean that that play pattern is very important because it means you get to like do that and you know get let's say a turn one monkey, and then it, it just keeps getting better and better as the game goes on because you also get to like you know end of turn with one mana up, kill their only creature, then you know tap out for Jace or Teferi or whatever else. Exactly. I mean, these these super crazy, you know, two and three spell turns you get to pull off in the, I guess not late game, but whatever, late-ish game for modern, like turn three, four, and five, you, just, you start exactly. having incredible turns. I have had a lot of scenarios where I go like against creativity, something like they go for the creativity, I go for the counter spell, they counter spell, they play a spell pierce, so like they turn four and I just go binding for the one mana I have behind, like for three mana I got a counter spell plus a binding. And that's insane. That's like March level of value without having to play March. Yeah. But it costs I can target anything. So, you know, there's a bunch of decks that have been using it. So you mentioned creativity. We talked about all of the Cascade decks. Also, blue-white X-Control. You guys mentioned that as a home you're interested in. And then just four-color Orion. You know, just plays one extra Triome and can play that says one mana. It's fine at yeah. two mana, though. Two mana instant get rid of any permanent is very playable. I, I don't think you even need, if your opponent blows up your black land or whatever, you don't you need... You don't need to have redundancy in that because if they are blowing up, it's in the mid to late game where paying two mana for this is still a pretty good rate. Yes. So, Binding has generated in a lot of matchups a sort of mini game, as to say. I'm going to give a tiny example of a few games I have played in the past. So now when you're playing the modern leagues, you're going to face a lot of decks with a full playset of Binding. And you're going to walk into this tiny minigame. Like, I was playing against Days and, against Narset Days Undoing. And I had a Days Undo, and I had an, a Leyline Binding. And I played it on... It was game two. I won game one. And I played the Binding on a Teferi, right? Sorry, on a Narset. And on turn six, they go Teferi. I try to counter. They counter back. The Teferi resolves, bounces my binding, they get Narset and they activate Days Undoing. Mm. So, and then what happened in the third game is I had the option of either killing Narset or a Chase and binding the other. And I had to binding Chase and kill Narset because eventually when they played their own binding to get my binding, I had to make sure they were not getting an Narset at the time I couldn't play around it. Yeah, so you're saying the the permanent nature of the enchantment is a a drawback. It, it's not sorts of plowshares or whatever. There are exactly. cards that interact with it, and the, those turns end up being very tempo positive for them, especially with specifically the card to fairy because they don't get to you can't reflash it back in for one mana. Exactly. Against any bounces or such, you can deal with it. But the problem is, so removal tends to be dead, be dead against control. The problem with binding is it isn't dead against binding. Right. So binding is a counter spell against binding, as weird as that sounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So cascade decks or creativity actually get more use out of it because it even has a use against midrange decks or control decks, as you get rid of one of the removal. 
it's a weird mini game it generates of bindings. And and you know, it's one of those things too where like, okay, of course binding it's binding, and there's a few other cards that just bounce all permanence, right? Like uh petty theft, uh, to fairy. But because you have so few other enchantments typically, there's no reason to bring in like disenchant effects against it. Exactly. So it's like, oh, because it's an enchantment's a weakness. Well, you have to be playing a card that's generically good. You you don't just get to play like Knight of Autumn or something in your main deck. What I got got on the first day was Tear Asunder. Mm. The new card from exactly Dominaria. Yeah, so just a quick reminder to people who maybe haven't played with it yet. It's one in a green, instant, exile target enchantment or artifact, and then kicker, one in a black. If you pay the kicker cost, you get to exile any non-land permanent. Is that correct? I think so. I'm not sure of one part. Let me check. Okay, yeah. it. I thought it destroyed on its first mode. So Tear Asunder is likely one of the best disenchants, even without the kicker, because it's really weird for your two mana disenchant to also exile, right? Yeah, it's just the world's best naturalized, and then it has this crazy thing where it just turns <laughs> into four mana, you know, kill anything. Yeah, yeah. It goes from both from world's best naturalized to even having the upside of being an instant speed, I don't know, almost vindicate. Yeah, I want I wonder if they played this if they made this card so strong as like a main deckable check to um all the sagas. I don't know if they knew like Fable would be as good as it would be in standard, let's say, but they they are printing a ton of sagas and they probably thought that at least one of them would be very good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. But Tira Sunder, great card. I think it's gonna get a small naming here, but the most important thing is Leyland Binding was was and is king of the changes in the format. Because it's borderline free and one mana removal is priceless. Yeah, and like you say, for anything, you in response to Days Undoing, you can exile their Narsa and just draw a full new grip. That sounds pretty good. That's what's happened in a few games. Or like the fact you can get rid of a Murktide. The fact you can get with the same removal Narset, Teferi, Hammer, and I don't know. I, I got that Shin today. They, they, I played against, so Spike made a new brew that's Iset with a snake. Dan loves. Uh, Terror. Oh, oh, the five five that has Ward two and it costs yeah, like five less with Ward two for every instant structure in your graveyard. Yeah, yeah. The Sheen, the new one. Did you call it? The, did you call it a snake? What is it? It's a serpent. It's the same. No, no, no. Don't get me started on this run because I'm gonna run for half an hour because I can't cover for both Quarl and Yorion because one is a freaking snake and one is a freaking serpent. And in other languages, there's a reason there's only one word for those. <laughs> there isn't snakes and serpents, there's serpientes. They're the same. So why there's two names for it? Yeah, I don't know, man. You'd have to talk to uh, El Diablo about that one. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to rant about it because hounds and dogs got the rat into being the same. Yeah, hound and dog is exactly the same. That's even the same species. <laughs> sea serpent is, is what they're referencing with the serpent, with the Tolarian, whatever the hell it is. And a sea serpent is a made-up creature, of course, but were it to exist, it would probably be some sort of, like, dinosaur. Which, as we know, are much closer to modern-day birds than they okay, are to yeah. modern-day snakes. Oh, okay, okay, so ser- serpent always refers to, like, a worm like a worm in size, right? Like, something huge. It often does. I mean, historically, you know, serpent obviously is a loan word from Latin for us, just like it is for you guys. Yeah, it has to say. So it does, it does mean snake. But uh, it, it's come to colloquially mean something else. You, you, it's, it's a very like formal way to describe a snake. So you'd use it in this other way. 
Yeah, okay, no, what I found online is, like, they didn't zoom in, like, something threatening, right? Like, the serpent, rather than yeah, snakey, yeah. rather than the snakey boy. Like, Quarrel is a snake, Yaron is a serpent. Yeah, there you go, snakey, Quarrel's a snakey boy, exactly. <laughs> snakey boy. <laughs> but, yeah, outside of that rant, going back to what concerns us, in Dominar United, we have the beautiful binding in a lot of decks, four color, a solid control, cascade, creativity, and such, and glimpse elementals as well, because it's even a permanent they can find. What about Pioneer? Well, hang on here. We have a little Cave Dan finance tip we want to <laughs> shout out to everybody. So he points out that lots of lists are just adding Leyline, but many of them, especially the uh, Cascade lists, are also playing Sign of Draco. And he wants to point out to everybody that both Sign of Draco and uh, Svelun of Sea and Sky are both... Is Svelun a name or a title? Uh, I believe it's a title of a... Because it's a legendary merfolk, right? They're both for MH2 merfolk, or mythics, and they C4X play in known modern decks. They used to be dirt cheap. He has $1 to $2 here, but they're starting to creep up 2 to $4 each. So he specifically says, if you have any interest in playing Rhinos, Calibrated Blast, Domain, merfolk, or M. Hayashi Blue, and M. Hayashi, hmm. of course, uh, brewed up that mono blue deck, that one with four of the uh, Sea and Sky in there. If there's a monocolor deck and it's not burn, there's a high percent chance M. Hayashi had something yeah. to do with it. So he's recommending to buy your playset now. So I think that is great advice. MH2 cards are only going to get more expensive. And these are MH2 mythics that are not that expensive right now, but they do something, as Dan likes to say, that is best in class. No other card does exactly what they do. And um, they're only going to get more expensive. So I, I just want to make that note. I think that's a really good note for me. And we don't make a lot of finance calls, but... Uh, I think I've made like two or three and they've all been pretty spectacular. Yeah, I have only done one, I think, which was the binding one because I really try to not do anything I'm not sure of regarding other people's money. But binding was just a slam dunk. Also, fun fact, Sivelung got referred to in the High Tide Fallen Empires. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So, like, it seems like Sivelung was a long time card, like, concept, as the Merfolk card. Yeah, I don't know if when they were making those sets they realize that they'd be making them so much in the future that they could just start using random <laughs> references in the uh <laughs> flavor text to think of new titles but you reach a point where you just go back to a set to an old plane and you're like okay what do we name from here yeah and you just start to rely on whatever you can get your hands on wait high tide said may civil unanker tides favor you that's it yes and then you have like the asthma <laughs> Yeah, so Pioneer. I mean, we haven't seen that much new stuff in there. Of course, Liliana of the Veil was the big ad, and it didn't spawn any new decks. It just sort of slotted into a bunch of existing decks. So, Rakdos Midrange, already trying to play a very low-resource game, already playing a shit ton of three-mana rares and mythic rares. Liliana slots right in there. Multiple Greasefang lists. Want to put stuff in the graveyard want to, you know, punish your opponent if they're trying to save up all their removal for Abzan and Greasefang, or for the, specifically the Greasefang. So you can play it in Abzan or uh, Mardu, etc. Um, and then there's just a bunch of random, you know, sort of mid-range black decks. Uh, I think mid-range is a good place to be. I think now we know when new sets come out, people want to play with new cards, and they love to, you know, make these futzy decks. And so you should just play aggro to punish them. But if you want to beat the aggro decks, you should just play a bunch of like monoremoval.com <laughs> decks and Liliana slots very well into there. If you just go like push into 
Dreadbore into Liliana, right? And then now you're just up a, a Planeswalker and you've probably traded relatively even on mana uh, the first three turns of the game. You're, you're in a pretty good spot. So when I saw, I was testing some Pioneer the last couple of days with the Yorion the, the Orsop deck. And Absent Grease Fang, I saw like a lot of Absent Grease Fang with all of them playing four Lilies. Yeah, I think some people are playing three, some people are playing four. I mean, people love this Abzan, or excuse me, love this Grease Fang list. I just, Grease Fang just, it sucks. I just been smoking it with every garbage list I come <laughs> up with. So keep doing that, everybody. But yeah, it just makes a lot of sense there. Like, a lot of times you don't want to play out your Grease Fang into removal. Liliana makes your opponent react, right? You have a Planeswalker that's slowly making its way to ultimate. And while it's doing that, it's putting various cards in the graveyard. It's also really good in the mirror, because one of the best ways to fight Grease Fang was to just, you know, they discard their um, their vehicle. You play Graveyard Trespass or Exile it. Now they have to spend like a card plus discard a card to get rid of it. Liliana's actually really good against Graveyard Trespasser specifically. Okay. Uh, it's one of the few cards that like gets rid of it without, assuming it's the only creature in play, of course. But <laughs> So it's it's weirdly like Graveyard Trespasser is now really bad in the mirror of all these matchups, but it's still really good against Phoenix. So I think it creates kind of a weird, you know, like paper, rock, scissors kind of thing where do I want to play for Graveyard Trespasser's main? It makes me really bad against the other <laughs> mid-range lists that are playing for Liliana, but it's hmm. makes me better against the non-Liliana uh, deck. So that, that's kind of interesting to me. Okay. I like the rock, paper, scissors it generates. Like this weird Liliana is good against the Trespasser, Trespasser is good on Phoenix. Phoenix just dunks on Lily. Yeah, makes I mean... You cry. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really embarrassing how bad Liliana is to it's like plus Liliana okay discard Phoenix my turn <laughs> so the other day we had this surreal experience in a in an LCS group here where one of the guys made top eight and after that he started discussing he, the plays he made during the tournament I have never wanted to stop playing Magic so much after hearing the plays this guy had made in order to win he actually he kept the four Lilianas against Rage and actually managed to win by plusing Liliana against Rage. Hmm. And, for example, set it in Void Mirror against Rage, where it has zero text because he thought he stopped, like, creeping chills, and he was like, why does Magic, does, why does Magic do this? <laughs> why is Magic like this, good sir? So it just destroyed me emotionally. Yeah, that those are tough to come back from. And what about... Binding in Pioneer. Have you seen any so far? Well, of course, we brewed some lists up. We have seen it played in Enigmatic Incarnation. Um, but, you know, it just, I don't, it's fine there, I think. They're playing the full four. They they do have four Enigmatic Incarnations. They have been adding some seven drops. The list I have here has one Coma, two Colossal Sky Turtle, one Titan of Industry, and then uh, Agent of Treachery and Titan of Industry in the sideboard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's 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 sort of like a relatively easy thing to do. These lists also just end up making the game go long. So these seven drops don't get stuck in your hand. And the Colossal Sky Turtle especially, uh, you know, the bounce ability is actually quite good against Grease Fang. It's uh, the return target card from your graveyard. Your hand is actually quite good against Control, right? They counter your first Enigmatic Incarnation. You pick it up and, and try again. Oh, yeah. So I think it's a pretty low-cost way to, to play the card. I, Playing a coma is actually nice in game one against control because you, you just have this uncounterable threat right in the late game 
eventually. And games so. go really long with enigmatic, so... Yeah, really long. That's the thing with enigmatic. Running the seven drops is not as devastating because the chances of hard casting them are actually non-zero. When I was playing it in modern, I actually got to hard cast Agent of Treachery a few a few number of times. Yeah. And the, the other thing is, like, Chain of the Rocks, in theory, is great removal, but actually just sucks. Like... The way the mana works, it's you can basically never chain on turn one ever. And even chaining on two is really hard, right? You have to have enough white sources to have a white by turn two. And you have to have specifically a mountain, not a red source. So it was already like a turn three or four play that was just very efficient. Well, Leyline Binding, if you're going to play all these Triomes and Fortnite's Presidents, is basically the same thing. Yeah. Uh, only it's Flash. And it, so it has much more application specifically, again, against Grease Fang. Flash removal is so much better. Um and it's better against Phoenix and stuff like that. <laughs> so I think it also just had a very natural place. Like you didn't want to get rid of your Chain of the Rocks because you don't have that many good twos. Um, you don't have any good twos. You have a couple twos, but they aren't good. Yeah, yeah. Chain of the Rocks is just decent while Binding is just as... Like Binding is just an upgrade even if it wasn't for the 7-drop play. Yeah. Like just as a removal is an upgrade. Right. So yeah, I mean, you can fill out your deck with whatever you want, and the, however many sevens you want to play. I mean, I, I think the Colossal Sky Turtles especially are very free. They are enchantments. Yeah, I think four seven drops is insanity, but yeah, it's, I think it's insanity. Yeah, it's so hard to tell too. Like, I'm not—I don't want to discount anyone's five O's in week one, but like, you're playing against all kinds of weirdo decks where people are still trying to figure it out. You can get a lot of really good matchups. I think if you just build your deck to beat aggro decks right now you're gonna just do really well you, again hmm. just like load up on removal this uh player has just got a ton of removal um, almost all their three drops are functionally removal yeah so i i think leyline binding is just part of that it's like a removal spell that's cheap so you want to be playing a ton of removal and then also gives you this like almost unbeatable late game we'll say not totally unbeatable late game but it gives you a sense of inevitability where you Get your Leyline of Binding, you sack your 6-drop, you get a, your 7-drop, and then the big thing that I found when I was playing is you just play your 1-of Glasspool Mimic. So your random Omen of the Sea or whatever turns into your second Titan or your second Sky Turtle or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Also, if you're playing a lot of removal, make sure a lot of them is instant speed or you can attack graveyards just so you don't get Grease Fang to death. Yeah, Grease Fang is everywhere and, you know... It's very easy to play around. You just have to play around it. You have to, you know, the the format is quite forgiving if you pay the piper, and the piper is asking you for a very specific thing. Yeah, yeah, the, the piper is specific, but he's cheap, just yes. specific. Yes. So that's something that I have really taken into consideration when I'm playing pioneer because it's shockingly hard to find removals that actually kill Chris Fang, right? Like revolt is not as easy as one would seem. Stuff like March is too slow. Strangle is a sorcery, so you just struggle to always find the correct card. Yeah, the thing that I've found is it's really hard to find a removal that is good against both Lanoir Elf on turn one and Grease Fang. And those are the cards that are kind of pressuring your removal. Exactly. So you want stuff that's good against Lanoir Elf, or if you want to think of it this that way, uh, like Mono Red, but not really. But it's really important to kill Elf on turn one. And then it's also really important to kill Grease Fang with an instant speed spell. And the cards that do that are very, very rare, right? Like, the two mana spells that kill Grease Fang are only good if you're on the play against Mono Green. But as you say, all the one mana spells, except for specifically the um, Red Shock that does three with Spell Mastery, is, is a card I think is really good right now in the format. Kills Elf on one, and then by the time Grease Fang comes down in theory, you should have you know enough instants in your, or sorceries in your graveyard to kill Grease Fang. So. Yeah. But Binding is a card. It won't kill Elf. 
So that puts you behind the eight ball, but it is so mana efficient in the middle game, it can take out their planeswalker and let you leave up counterspell for the next planeswalker or their, uh, you know, six mana s- sorcery or whatever, or let you play a planeswalker or something. So it, it, yeah. it isn't good against specifically turn one elf, but it is very good at the catch up <laughs> phase of the game. Yeah, I agree. And, but mono green is like, mono green seems like a bit of less of a trouble when everybody's trying new stuff. But I fear once the meta settles, the king is just going to return. <laughs> so yeah, other cool lists. A couple people 5-0'd with the new... Um, <laughs> what do you call it? Urza at home? <laughs> Urza at home, Pioneer Urza, or yeah, paradoxical stuff. So yeah, it's it's Maria, Scholar of Antiquity. This is a card we recognize as super powerful. We said it would probably form an engine with Kinnon and Emery, and uh, it did. And it is exactly that. We said it would go, you know, you'd probably want to go infinite with Paradox Engine. We said you'd probably want to play three in your main deck and four Karns in your in in your main deck and one uh, in your sideboard. The two lists that 5-0'd did exactly that. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't want to take anything away from both of these brewers, but th- this is sort of the kind of thing that I, I think we expected to see. Uh, I think we'll see people experiment with this a lot. People love these types of shells. All I know is, like, Emery decks suck in Pioneer. Emery is such a bad card. <laughs> and I wonder if just people aren't used to playing against it or you got the right matchups or whatever. But, like, man, these decks look so fragile. Uh, like, any amount of disruption plus a little bit of aggression and they, they can't ever win. These decks flop to literally six removal spells. Like, as you have no control spell or anything, if your opponent has literally six removal spells on their deck or they actually manage to draw more removals than you draw Emery's, yeah. You might be close to death. <laughs> Immediately. So I think these decks get a huge upper upper step by the opponent misses the correct line via lack of knowledge. Like I, I have seen a lot of comments with Iset Bridge winning a lot in modern and every single comment and every single post Rose Hanets or Cory Bomister make after the win, they have another one of their co- of their mates or the players they play with saying did he win or did your opponent lose the game? <laughs> yeah. And I think that we have the same thought here. So it'll be interesting to see, like, again, I don't know how much, obviously these lists are different, so there's obviously wiggle room on how to build it, but your sideboard's pretty locked in place because you are playing Karn. Yes. And um, you can't change your main deck too much because you do need a real density of artifacts, both for Emery and Maria, and you're locked into the 12 Legends and the, the 4 Mox Ambers. And at least four Spring Leaf Drums, some number of Moonsnare prototypes. And then it looks like four Courier's Briefing for everybody. So a lot of these choices are actually kind of locked. There's there's not that many variables. So, like, how resistant is this going to be against hate? How resistant is this going to be against opponents' Karns and, uh, you know, removal.deck? So, cool stuff. Obviously, Maria is a super cool card. It's kind of doing exactly what we thought, right? As soon as you see Maria, you're like, all right, with Paradox Engine, this card is super busted. People are making decks that are trying to play it with Mary uh, Paradox Engine and a bunch of mana, and uh, yeah, we'll have to see. It. We'll have to see what their longevity is going to look like. Yeah. Also, there was a five zero with Media in Modern, shockingly, in a Hardened Scales list. Yeah, this is a crazy list. So, you know, Maria is a three mana three three. She's not nothing, but she's not. You wouldn't. I did not think of her as a card in a beatdown list. I mean. <laughs> Hardened Scales is somewhat combo-y, but it's re- it's also like just a re- an aggro deck, right? Sometimes you're just kind of all in on like a 8-8 Ravager for a couple of attacks. Yeah. And so, 
Yeah, there's a lot of artifacts lying around, and she can generate a bunch of mana, but man, I, I was really surprised to see this list. I, I, really interesting. So I don't think she's here for the mana, actually. I think she's here for the second mode, because with Hunter's case, a lot of the time, you get stuck behind with, a, like, one Savas, one Archon Worker, maybe one Automaton and a Welding Shard, or, you know, like, one Osolith, one Welding Shard, a Worker, and, I don't know, an Animation Model or something like that. And that means you're drawing three cards per turn with Media. Yeah. I think that's the mode she's here for, because Osolith is just staying around doing nothing, never taps, same with Welding Shard. The fact they don't require to tap down means you can just use them completely. For, like, one Osolith plus one Welding Shard with Media is one extra card per turn for zero downside. Yeah, so, I mean, you can even uh, turn your uh, <laughs> Moth Nexus into a creature and tap <laughs> to, to start looking. Yeah. And tap from area. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's what we have, why we have it here for, if I had to guess. Like, the value lines you can go for it have to be pretty impressive. And these don't diminish post side, like bringing in Grass Digger's Cage and Callis of the Void and start tapping them for value. Yeah, and that makes me wonder, I mean, it's probably only going to get played with Paradox Engine, but it makes me wonder if we could play it like in a more fair shell in Pioneer. I mean, maybe. The lack of a good, already aggressive shell, like Hardened Scales is not amazing in Modern, but has legs, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. if I lose to Hardened Scales, I, I wouldn't shock me to the ground. <laughs> So, at least you're ready for that. Maybe that's what needed. But yeah, super cool tech. I think, you know, obviously this card does something very unique. It does it in a different color pair that we've seen. So I, I think this is a card we'll continue to see people experiment with. Again, I don't want to be like, I don't want to seem like I'm negative. I, in Pioneer, the lists are already kind of converging, it seems like. I mean, a lot of these card choices are kind of locked in. And it'll just be like, is this rough shell good enough to, to withstand people learning how to play against it? And... Maybe even like playing a cyborg card or two against it. Uh, we'll have to find out. But in modern, I mean, yeah, it's like seems like the sky's the limit. There's all kinds of crazy stuff you can do. Hmm. Exactly. So I hope Media seems some play because I, she is extremely interesting as a card. Ursa at home is still Ursa. Sure. And then below that, we have at least with a card our Discord described as Bone Crusher with artifacts. Yeah, so this is, is it Yotia or Yoshia? I'm just going to say Shotia or Yotia. Okay. I'm going to stick with Yotia. Sure. Declares War. So this card showed up specifically in one pilot's hands, which is Killer Sheep. And they played it with four Hex Parasites and four Power Conduit and four Urza Saga. Four Fabled Mirror Breaker, and then an Elder Dragon War. So the the trick here, the joke here, is that Power Conduit lets you re-trigger the, whatever mode you want over and over again. So if you want each turn uh, Yotia to let you uh, turn one of your artifacts into a 4-4, it can do that. It'll just make a 4-4 artifact over and over again for the rest of the game. I would have to guess the most common modes, because you're also using Power Conduit, which means you're putting a counter on something. Which people tend to forget with... Like, taking the charge counter is the cost for it. You still get to put a plus one, plus one counter on it. So with Yotia, you're making a one-three stopter every turn. Yeah. Like, that's the low ground. Yeah. And, okay, that doesn't sound very good, but... I mean, I think the real key is that Power Conduit plus Urza Saga is awesome because in response oh, yeah. to the third trigger, you get your you get a free one or zero drop over and over again. 
and then you get to make um you can continue to make your uh your your constructs yeah even keeping the even keeping just the sagas alone and getting a free mishra's bubble or spell bomb or whatever for free every turn is bound to get you so much value yeah so i mean i don't know if no one else tried it but it, it, the list is just super cool i Yotia just doesn't seem that powerful to me in modern. So even with all these tricks, I'm wondering, is this a card? I have tried a power conduit with the other red drop where um, the first saga thing makes you discard your hand, but the second saga trigger lets you draw two cards. And power conduit with that is awesome. Like, of course, you have to... There's no read ahead, so you have to do the discard your hand. But if you're playing all cheap spells like this deck is... But then for the rest of the game, power conduit just reads tap, draw two cards, which is just... Totally insane. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, there's tons of artifacts here and maybe just over and over again, they get to tap all these uh, artifacts to do some damage to their opponent's creatures. You are getting free artifacts from your fable token. Uh, you also have gear up other grid, which is another source of damage. So I think you just have a lot of ways to control the board. And then you kind of have this inevitability baked in with power conduit, just generating a dragon every turn or, the deck 100% relies on A, opponent not being able to respond to Ragavan and just win via Ragavan being Ragavan, which has to be a fair amount of wins. Or making sure Hexparasite slash Power Conduit makes it alive. Like, making sure you have one of those on the board seems extremely relevant at getting to do whatever you want. Yeah, so like a card like Blood Moon, this deck can't interact with at all, and obviously kills all your Urza Sagas, and so... Shockingly, that the monoroid deck could be really vulnerable to Blood Moon. <laughs> I agree, but it, it seems like it is. It does not have a lot of ways to win the game. Also, the deck is playing two Leyline of Sanctity on the sideboard, which is weird. Like, two Leyline of Only two Leylines, and no way to cast them in the main deck outside of drawing your canopy lands. Yeah, you have two Sunbay Canyon. They have one Blood Crypt to fetch for. There's no black source in the entire list. It's not even a red-white land for some reason. Oh, it's black for the Hex Parasite, I see. Yeah, no, they have one black land for Hex Parasite because that, if you're using that for four or five turns, it's going to drain you really fast. Yeah. Also, one of the versions has one Inscribed Tablet, which is a card also so modern play as a 3 of in Eltrasitron. Inscribed Tablet is one mana artifact, pay one and sacrifice, Reveal the top five, put a land from among them into your hand, and if you don't hit a land, you get to draw a card. Yeah, Ari Lax actually picked it as what he thought would be the best card in modern from the entire set. So Wait, really? I was surprised to see, I mean, he had that right over Leyline Binding, specifically because he thought of how it would interact with Tron. And here we are in week one, and people are are using it in Eldrazi Tron. Yeah, yeah. each one I can see it because this is like, Sylvan's crying if it had a lot of identity issues and just, I don't know, was <laughs> super dumb. But in Eldrazi Tron, however, I can see it as a few of. And, you know, people love playing Eldrazi Tron. It's kind of fallen off the map in the uh, MH2 world. So any card that, you know, gives people the excuse to maybe uh, try it again. Again, it is the early days of a format. We've seen that aggro yeah. decks tend to overperform early on. This is a deck that is disruptive enough while providing, you know, especially if you draw your Eldrazi Temples, a, a pretty quick clock. So it might be that this doesn't have legs. Priest on Tron is seeing a lot of play right now. It even won a huge tournament the past couple of days, which is like, what if E-Tron met Blue Tron and it met Monarch Green Tron and it just tries to do crazy stuff? 
It's a super interesting deck. So when you say Prison Tron, you're just referring to Chalice of the Void, right? No, no, no. It's like prison-ish. Like Spellskite, Welding Shard, Kalis, Snaring Ridge. I'm not saying Lantern Control, number Prison, Prison, but Prison-ish. Like Kalis, Spellskite, Snaring Ridge in the main deck alongside Karns. It even plays one of the bad Karn. <laughs> What's the bad Karn? Um... Not the terrible Karn, the mediocre Karn. What's the mediocre Karn? The silver Karn. Oh, the one that uh, makes Kar- that actually makes Karn Strucks. Yeah. Yeah. The The list I'm looking at that went 3-1 in the modern prelim does not have the mediocre Karn. Okay. No, but I, let me try to find a list. I think maybe that's not like full-on prison prison. It's like more Eldrassi Tron with Kalis. No, see, it has Welling Shard, 3 Snaring Reach, 4 Mystic Force... 3 Serum Powders, Pithing Needle. If I think plays 4 Spells Guide, I call it Prison. Okay. That's, that's and not same. even get me started if it has a Possessed Portal in the sideboard. So what about when decks were playing like Spells Guide and... Um, uh, what's the one where they copied uh, the 2-1 Flyer over and over again? Wait, what? Splinter Twin played Spells Guide. So was that Prison? Spells- Shh, don't... don't. Don't go via that argument. <laughs> but like, this is the tournament I was forced by Zach to talk about. Um, SCG Con Columbus was won by Prison Tron, which played four spells guide, four Kalis, four expedition map, relic, source of spylash, serum powder, mystic forces, snaring bridge. I think by this time the card hadn't released, but the new versions are actually playing some number of tablets. Yeah, so I think that might be a mainstay. It, it is a colorless car. It lets you do stuff. It also just cycles, right? It's not the end of the world when it doesn't find a land or in the late game when you don't want land anymore. No, no, it's not a May. Oh, okay. No, no. If if it was a May, I would like the card. It's a reveal five. Put a land card from among them. If you don't hit a land, you get to draw. Got it. No, no. If it, if it was a May, I would actually like the card a lot more. The fact in the late game it's still a land, it's super annoying unless you have Ursa Saga. So all of the decks that play this have to play Ursa Saga. Right. Well, I mean, that's something. Yeah, yeah, of course. All right, so a card that I was really surprised to see play in both Modern and Pioneer is Sarah Paragon. So just to remind us, this is two white-white <laughs> for a 3-4 angel flying. Once during each of your turns, you may play a land from your graveyard or cast a permanent spell with mana value 3 or less from your graveyard. If you do a gains, when this permanent is put into a graveyard from the battlefield, exile it, and you gain two life. So it sort of has like a Sun Titan-ish, you know, grinding inevitability about it. Seemed very slow and clunky to me. It seems like the card that you play on turn five, play a fetch land, and it eats a fatal push. Yeah, <laughs> but time. I mean, if I'm getting a fatal push plus two life, final land out of my opponent, I don't feel that bad, right? I feel terrible to do that on turn five. I think you just lose all those games. The thing is, you might be in trouble in those games, but the games it survives, it's like a super Lurus. Yeah, but Lurus is not a card that saw play in main decks ever, so comparisons to cards that only exist in a magical, like, made-up sideboard for for one reason or another is not relevant to me. I think Lurus decks never saw play main deck, because Lurus was a companion. Yeah, but some decks didn't meet the Lurus condition, and Lurus never made the main deck of those decks. Yeah, yeah, but that's... But I think that's because if your deck was able to beat the Lurus condition, it means Lurus was good. In- so it's sort of like 
nullified itself because if your deck was close to mating the Lurus condition, it means Lurus was good in your deck, but why play Lurus in your deck when you can play Lurus as a companion? Like it sort of devolved itself into forcing itself as a companion because why would I play Lurus in the main deck when I can play it as a companion? And if I don't want Lurus, why would I play it as a companion? So why would you play it in the main deck? Besides Enigmatic, which was super far away from accomplishing, like, <laughs> playing the the requirement, any deck that wanted to play Lurus in the main deck would just run it as a companion. I think Lurus would have seen a decent amount of main deck play if it wasn't... if they banned the companion rule, for example. Well, I mean, this is the... Uh... Maybe the proof concept of that. There's four Sarah Paragons in a uh, Jeskai Stoneblade list. Yes. Which is absolutely wild. So four Oswald Fiddle... So it's a, first of all, it's Orion. Of course. Four Oswald Fiddlebender, four Stoneforge Mystic, a bunch of random uh, equipment, of course. It has the Lightning Greaves <laughs> Crackdown Construct combo. It has Sword of the Meek Thopter combo. Uh, it has the Crucible of Worlds, uh, Urza's Saga thing happening. It has Goblin Engineer, and then it has Sarah Paragon at the top end of all this stuff. Uh, with no mana ramp whatsoever. No. So I think what this deck is trying to do is overwhelm you with plans. Turn 1, Ragavan, into turn 2, Goblin Engineer, get a sword. Into turn 3, Stoneforge Mystic. Get a Kaldra, into turn 4 Oswald, if you can solve it I'm gonna Oswald, into turn 5 Serra Paragon, get back my Ragavan, and just every turn turning something that's kill on sight, right? Esper Sentinel, kill on sight, Ragavan, kill on sight, Colin Engineer, kill on sight, Oswald and Stoneforge, kill on sight, Serra Paragon, we just said it. And every single turn just boom, 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 boom. Yeah, so I find Orion interesting here. So obviously, you Orion lets you play a bunch of one-offs, and you don't have to have any discipline at all. Making <laughs> your tags have a zillion one-offs, that's awesome. Yes. But you get almost no value. There's almost nothing that Orion blinks here that actually draws a card. It's just Stoneforge Mystic, right? No, but there's hidden value. You have Nerelsis, Caldra, and Butterschool. Okay. Which are, of course, ETVs. Because the token dies, but you get the token back. That's extremely common. All right, so you have three cards plus four Stoneforge Mystics. Then you have the four Stoneforge Mystics. Then you have the slight value in Portable Hole because it's pretty common to move it around. Okay. No, no, I I mean, that happens. A lot of the time you will use Portable Hole on like a Ragavan on turn one, and eventually it's going to be irrelevant because you're going to have a Orion. And then you have Breya's Apprentice and the four Goblin Engineer. It's not a lot of value, but I don't think it's negligible. Yeah, I, I feel like Urian is more here, so you get to play all of your sweet one-ofs, honestly. Like, yeah. <laughs> you're one of everything. I think that might be consistent enough due to having eight tutors, right? Four Glowing Engineer, four Oswald. Means you really have eight ways to get look for anything. Well, and, and Stoneforge Mystic is also a tutor. Yeah, but I mean, not for the... Like, for example, if I want to get... Let's say I want to get Lightning Grips. Sorry, Lightning Grips, I have 12 of them. But if I want to go get um, the one of Thunder Foundry, I have four Oswald, four Goblin Engineer. Yeah. Super sketchy, four Tefeli Time Traveler in the sideboard. And one Unlicensed Curse, which I, I'm shocked it doesn't see playing in the main deck. 
Getting a license hurt turn one via Oswald or Goblin Engineer has to be devastating for a million decks. Yeah, I mean, the graveyard hit they're choosing to play instead is Soul Guide Lantern as a card that's easily tutor tutorable with their uh, Oswald and Engineer, and then Lion Sash is tutorable with all 12, because Stoneforge Mystic can tutor for it instead. I'm shocked to see zero zero drops in the main deck. Like, I think if I would play this, I would take out maybe the Embercleave, the Halofontaine, and maybe... I don't know what else I would take out two or three cards, maybe the rabbit battery and go for three, four Mistress bubbles, both for the Serra Paragon value, the um, Goblin Engineer value, and the fact you can Oswald them for a one drop. Yeah, I also like the uh, one mana artifact that when it goes to your graveyard, you get to draw. I think that card's really good with... Um, one mana? Tron plays it. You can sack it for a mana to make a mana of any oh, color. Oh, Chromatic Star. Yeah. But it's really it's really good with Oswald. And um, I think cheap cards you can bring back with your Sarah Paragon for some amount of value are really important. Yeah. Also, the two mana egg. It's not an egg. Igor Wellspring, I think, yeah. has to see play in your Colin Engineer egg. Yeah, not not a lot of twos to tutor up here. There's only uh, Greaves, Sword of the Meek, Thopter Foundry... And Lion Sash. I mean, when you go for the twos, you likely go for the combo. That's what I see here, right? Yeah, I mean, th this deck is the most all-in on combo I've ever seen of any deck that's intentionally making their deck not very combo dense. <laughs> the thing is, I think it, you go for the combo once your opponent is overwhelmed, right? Like, Ragavan into Engineer, into Oswald, into Stoneforge. Eventually, if one of them sticks, you just go for the combo. But you have to threaten enough. Like the the reason Thunder Foundry hasn't seen more playing modern right now is because it's so easily dealable if it's the only thing you're doing. However, this deck is trying to like overwhelm its opponent with different stuff, and eventually just oh okay, Foundry Sword. Yeah, interesting. They're playing no Ingenious Smith either, which I thought was kind of an interesting choice. That's a card we've seen. Like Aspiring yeah. Spike had a mono white version of a list like this. I think that played four Smith, and they seemed yeah. very good in that shell. I'm not, I'm not saying it's wrong to not do so. It's just a surprising thing to note. I agree. Like you say, there's so many one-offs. There's I, Obviously, we're, we're picking out some cards we like, some cards we don't like. I'm not sure that like you need a rabbit battery. You know, that's that's already like raising an eyebrow for me. Do you need all four Sarah Paragons? You know, is it often better than, than Ingenious Smith? Uh, I, I need to see some data on that. I'm not sure I'm a believer. So I think the best build to build this deck would be adding Sandamber of Mishra's Bubble, maybe Trima Serra Paragon. Take some of the one-offs that with some testing. Whenever you test with these couple of decks, you tend to eventually realize which cards were not supposed to be there, right? Yeah, although if they 5-0'd, maybe they're like, oh no, they went 6-1 and almost won the modern challenge, so maybe they're like every card is, you know, in its perfect place. <laughs> <laughs> I love that they also have the crackdown, the crackdown construct combo with lightning grips. Yeah. Yeah, they got it all. They're not they're not willing to skimp on anything. And we saw Sarah. We saw Sarah Paragon in a bunch of other decks. So it was again in Modern in a Urian list in like a mono-white Sun Titan. Uh, and with their Sun Titan, there's Amiria, the Sky Ruin. And then in Pioneer, it was in a bunch of removal dot decks. You can pair it with just black. You can pair it with black and red if you want. Uh, those lists are all basically just red-black mid-range with a few <laughs> other cards. Specifically, Vanishing Verse is maybe the best removal spell in the format other than Push. So... Yeah. The rest of the white cards aren't very good, and you can see people just trying random shit, and you're making <laughs> your mana a lot worse, but maybe it's worth it, right? So, Yeah, just 
being able to both be uh having the managing verse is almost always worth it just due to exiling Parhelion and Liliana in the new format. Also, I love that Serra Paragon is the first card that got Bob to stop playing four Sun Tyran. <laughs> because they consider this a worthy replacement of one of them at least. So it has done its work in modern. <laughs> yeah. Getting back range the Captain of Fear seems super annoying. Right, but I mean <laughs> you get to, you have to play a four drop and has to live. I mean I think if that happens you should get uh, a Ranger Captain back. <laughs> <laughs> That seems reasonable to me. For three mana, you don't even get it for free. <laughs> you have to cast it. The most annoying one has to be the ferry, right? Keep casting the ferry. Yes. There it is. So that was a card that some people had pegged very high. I think Saffron Olive had it like two on his um, Pioneer list. I, I sort of guffawed at that. I thought that was ridiculous. But it's seeing a lot more play than I would have thought. So maybe I need to uh, check myself before I riggedy wreck myself. <laughs> get riggedy wrecked. So, besides, what's our next card? I think we're going straight into a card we got super... Evolve Sleeper. I think we had, I had at least a lot of faith for it. In Pioneer, of course. Yeah, I actually played against this this week a couple times. Uh, I beat the deck both times, but it looked good. I mean, it, it just provides you inevitability, right? When you're, when you're beating down, it's not bad. Getting that death touch counter actually matters if you're trying to block. Oh yeah, that came. They came up a lot. Like we block with your Omnath or whatever, just to not die, and it, it trades up. And yeah, just mono black just has a bunch of stuff. I mean, it's the same deck we've known for a while. Four push, four thoughtsies, always like a two of slightly more uh, universal removal that costs two mana, and then just a bunch of one and two drops. And evolve sleeper just I think is a little better than some of the other one drops people were playing. And um, it just seems to be doing just enough. Maybe that list was a little closer than people thought. Maybe it just encouraged people to try, and it would have been better. I have <laughs> seen a lot of people playing Shieldred, <laughs> your favorite card, in Pioneer. I'm stunned. This card just does not seem very good to me. I mean, I have seen a lot of people saying it's amazing and super annoying. And it's pretty good in like the Mono Black Devotion deck list, but I still don't love the card. The fact is, if it, your opponent just kills it, it does literally... A four-drop that, if it dies, regardless of when you top-deck it, it just does nothing, scares me. Like, we were talking about how Serra Paragon had to survive to do something. At least if you top-deck it on, like, turn seven, you don't, it doesn't have to survive, right? Right. Hildred always has to, like, make a full turn for it to do something like Drain to Life. But even Drain to Life is not playable. Right? Like, yeah, I don't know why people love it. The the Rhino drains three when it comes into play and is not playable. So he's no play. Exactly. Now, this is easier to cast. It is Death Touch instead of Trample. I think in shells that care about the shield or ability, maybe Death Touch is better because you're trying to not die. You're not an aggressive deck. But, man, I'm just so shocked. Like, hmm. Are you saying like a four mana, four five, that let's just say it does two damage when it comes into play. That's basically what it does. It just seems so bad to me. <laughs> Like, who cares if you gain two life? That's nothing. That That's basically, like, flavor text. It is. But, I don't know, people like it, and I can disagree with everyone, just with most. <laughs> but yes, it's strange to see it see play. Hopefully it becomes a uh, a mainstay so we can taunt more at all times. I, didn't, I never said the card was bad. Okay, I said it was... You did, You said it sucks, actually, I think is what, what your quote was. I said design sucks. I'm going to stick by it. It lacks fun text. Yeah, so then the other cards we want to highlight are the um, 
the Lords. So we saw Runvelt Hordemaster show up in the Saturday Modern Challenge. Goblins won it. Oh, yeah. It just replaced a few other goblins. There's no other new tech. It uh, opens up a bunch of combo options. It helps the deck reload against... We know what all the hate cards are. For the tribal decks, you know, it helps reload against Wrath of God. It helps reload against, uh, you know, whatever pitch elemental. Um, it helps you actually combo in certain situa- situations with Snoop. Uh, it does everything. So, uh, super cool card. I, I played against it in Pioneer and lost to it badly. <laughs> um, I guess not that much to say about it, or is there is there anything else you want to expound on? But yeah, just a really cool card. It just, it actually, so in the last episode, I talked about how you have to make heroes who sacrifice it before you find a sling gang, right? So you don't kill yourself. So you just don't, like, if you, sac- like, if you sacrifice your first noob, and you have the Lord in play, you're going to move that snoop, right? Because you're, you're going to exile something new, so the slinging is going to leave the top of your deck. However, what you can do is, assuming your opponent killed your 2 and your... What's the one that took her to the top? Uh, I don't remember. Okay, the Heartbringer. If your opponent yeah. if, if kills the Heartbringer, or you just luckily found a Kiki Shiki on the top of your deck, you don't actually have to look for the Heartbringer. You can actually just win the game. Just make 40 copies of Snoop equal to your deck. On the end step, let them die. And before they die, make a new infinite amount so they'll last up in your opponent's end step. And when they start dying, they're going to start exiling cards from the top of your deck until you have Sling and Lieutenant on top of your deck. And then you can win. Yeah, I actually think you want to make them all right away. You just want to make infinite the first time. And then you just... You okay, let yeah. the triggers go one at a time. Yeah, they start dying one at a time, right? They don't die all at the same yeah, time. So yeah, you 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 already want the infinite ones in play, and then and then once they're in play, then you then you sack them all. Yeah, you just have to make sure, like if your opponent maybe has a way to survive, just make sure you don't exile your whole deck if possible. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, basically, what you want is let's say you want a hundred in play, you'll you'll sack some number of them until you get to your sling gang. Let's say it takes thirty five of them, you've got sixty five left. And then yeah. each of those sacks to to drain your opponent for one, and you don't have to exile anymore uh, because they're just they're doming your opponent. Hmm. So yeah. Besides that, the other lord that saw a lot of play was the one I didn't expect to, which was the elf one, just being amazing in pioneer. Yeah, really surprised. You know, we liked it maybe for modern, of course, always adjusting for the fact that modern is very can be very hateful to tribal decks, but a lot of people had success. You know, some people were playing the full boat of Shaman of the pack, which is kind of what we had seen before. Some people are not doing that. There's people playing with Nykthos, which is super cool. Yeah, they're playing the uh, Circle of Dreams Druid. Very very interesting list. I'm looking at one right here that has two Sylvan Messengers in it, which is a card I didn't even know was Pioneer Legal. (laughs) What's the oh yeah? When was it printed? Uh, probably like when we returned to Zendikar or some random shit. I, yeah, I don't know. It's one of those cards that just got seated. There probably weren't enough elves at the time, so just no one ever thought about it. But <laughs> uh, this person was aware of it. Yeah, clearly. But yeah, it's just like a straight up value deck, right? You just you have mana elf, you have Jasper Sentinel, Sentinel, and then you have all your powerful two drops, including Leaf Crown Visionary, which I think is the best of them all. 
And uh, then you just you have a bunch of your three drops, Steel Leaf Champions, just a beat beater card, and then eventually you you know try to collect a company in a shaman of the pack and, and just do the last bits of damage. I really hate losing to like when you have the board stabilized, you're just like borderline trying to win against Tells and all of a sudden collective company double shaman of the pack. Screw you. Hit you for sixteen. The other thing worth noting is Shaman of the Pack just makes the elf deck a little bit more transformative. You look at these sideboards and the vast majority of the cards are black. Yeah. Which means they get to interact with other creature decks in a way that other tribal decks can't. And they get to uh, attack the graveyard because they get to play Leyline of the Void. And with Mana Elf, you can, if you, let's say you draw it on turn one, which is always the worst thing for Leyline, you can turn three Leyline of the Void, which is actually fine against Phoenix. Or um, if you're on the play against Greasefang, they, they really struggle to beat that. Okay. Also surprised by the addition of four Steel Leaf Champion. Well, I just think it's much more of a beatdown deck, right? Like you play Steel Leaf Champion on two, and then I play like Leaf Crown Visionary Attack with a six power creature. Can you really now kill my lord? It seems like you have to kill my... my six, yeah, my 5-4 hard to block creature that you can yeah, chump. Well, and, and now it's 6-5 with my Visionary <laughs> that you can't chump. Okay, yeah. So it's like, oh man, I, I have to kill it. Now I'm, I'm left with my like lord slash engine, so... Hmm. <laughs> But yeah, super interesting. We, I don't think any of us saw it coming. I 100% didn't. I, you know, I thought it'd be fine. And I've played against Elves decks that, you know, they all seem fine. But I was really surprised that uh, it seems like it saw more success in Pioneer than it did in Modern, which was a surprise to me. Yeah. Finally, I think we have Bordalian Hexcatcher doing what we assume, being the best Merfolk printer besides Sibelun and Merfolk Steam being terrible. Temporary Lockdown seeing a lot of sideboard play because it's a great card, but super specific. Yeah, I mean, and and then we, of course, saw Llanowar Loam Speaker in multiple Jeskai Sanity lists. I said that we would. Yeah. Uh, Dan didn't believe me. I think there were multiple 5-0 lists in week one with uh, multiple Llanowar Loam Speakers in it. The card's just insane with Ascendancy, so... Yeah, super, super cool week for week one. There was a bunch of cards that we expected, right? We thought Enigmatic or uh, Leyline Binding would be good. We thought a few of these other cards would find homes, and, and they did. And then other cards really surprised us with how powerful they were. Uh, at least in week one, we're, we're, we're seeing a bunch of cool lists, so uh, really encouraging. Exactly. The only card I think I'm going to cheer on making it bigger is Serra Paragon. I love that card. I'm going to make my best to make it see more play. Yeah, I like the card. I just don't believe in it. I love that Dan said you shut him down immediately because he referred to it as a white wireless tracker. And it was like, Dan, that's your mistake. You cannot tell David it's a wireless tracker. He's going to shut you down. You're going to get shut down. You have to tell him. He put, we don't need to discuss it on the freaking thing. I was like, all right, then I'm not going to spend any more time analyzing it. I'm just going to say. Tyler's tracker is totally unplayable. You have to sell it as a Lurus, not a wireless tracker. (laughs) Tyler's tracker is unplayable. Lurus, maybe not. Yeah. So yeah, super amazing week one. Super excited for all the new innovations. Hope they keep coming. And I think that's enough for us today. Yeah, so thank you to everyone who listened. We will be back on Monday. We are going to look at new brews for Ether Chandler. That is our card of the week. And we're going to take a look back at our Leyline Binding brews from the week before. Exactly. Thanks so much for for joining. Thanks so much, David. Have a nice night, everybody. Bye-bye. Take care. Decklist for this episode can be found at our homepage, faithlessbrewing.com. And tune in on Monday for new decks with Ether Channeler, plus testing results with Leyline Binding. Support for this podcast is provided by brewers like you. Join the Faithless family and help support the show at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing. 
for Discord access, bonus content, and more. That's all for today. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Peace.